0: Welcome to the Recess Nurse Podcast. Elevating emergency nursing, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Yunsi Dursa. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Recess Nurse Podcast. I'm your host, Yunsi Dursa. Today, I'm with Dr. Mark Probst, And we are going to dive into DKA and the management and treatment of these patients. It's a common thing that comes into our ER, but at the same time, it's a really serious situation. So, hi, Mark. Hi, Yunsi. Thanks for coming on to the show. Can you tell the listeners who you are and what you do?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I'm Mark Probst. I'm an academic emergency physician at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. Um, I do a little bit of research, a little bit of teaching, and of course, uh, I see patients in the emergency department.
0: All right, so let's just jump right in. Um, Can you just talk really quickly, what is the definition of DKA?
1: Uh, So DKA, I'm sure all your listeners already know, is diabetic ketoacidosis. And it's basically a hyperglycemic crisis that uh, diabetic patients can find themselves in. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, it is relatively common um, and it's something you really need to know how to diagnose and treat if you're working in the emergency department.
0: So what are some common findings that will create a diagnosis of DKA?
1: So common findings, I guess you're talking about the the three biochemical uh, abnormalities. So obviously you're gonna have uh, very high blood sugar, hyperglycemia. You're also gonna have uh, ketosis, production of, of ketones, and you'll see that in the blood or the urine. And lastly, you'll have acidosis, which is gonna be also diagnosed through your lab tests. Um, so you have five uh, criteria that needs, need to be met to make a diagnosis of DKA. And these are all going to be basically laboratory findings, either in the urine or in the blood, mostly in the blood. Uh, The first one we mentioned already is going to be hyperglycemia. So uh, if you look at the threshold above which uh, the sugar must be to to meet the criteria, it's according to the ADA, the American Diabetes Association, it's 250. So any sugar above 250, and we're using the, uh, the U.S. units of milligrams per deciliter, Uh, Any sugar above 250, and you're going to be meeting criteria for DKA. Secondly, you're going to look at your pH. So this is commonly found on your blood gas. Uh, Some people may still be doing ABGs, but um, I think most academic centers in the U.S. are just using venous blood gases now. And here we're talking about a pH of under 7.3. So the pH has to be under 7.3 to be in DKA. Uh, The other marker of acidosis is going to be your bicarb. Uh, and for the bicarb, you're, you're going to need to be at 18 or under to meet criteria. Uh, and then you're going to have your anion gap, which is calculated. And I guess we'll get into that a little bit later how to calculate the anion gap. Threshold is pretty low here for the anion gap. Any anion gap over 10, and you're going to be meeting criteria for DKA. Uh, and then finally, you're going to have to show evidence of ketones. And that can be either in the serum. Or in the urine, you can just get a U-dip and see ketones, which is fast and cheap, uh, and the way I like to check it is just in the urine. So again, sugar over 250, pH under 7.3, bicarb 18 or less, anion gap over 10, and evidence of ketones, any level of ketones in the urine or the blood.
0: So who are the people who generally come in and end up being in DKA? Diabetes can be extremely well managed. Um, so what kind of populations are we looking at? Um,
1: well, obviously, I guess by definition, there would be poorly controlled diabetics, and there's a host of reasons why um, people with diabetes can struggle to, to keep their disease under control. Um, one of the most common triggers for DKA is inadequate insulin. Uh, insulin uh, is a prescription medication that can be expensive. Um, in fact, some, some types of insulins are getting more expensive. So if you, ha- if you lack access to care um, and you can't get your insulin on time, you might be pushed into DKA just by not having enough of that medication. Um, but there are a number of other reasons as well. One of the other very common triggers for DKA is infections. Uh, and infections can be really um, any kind. We, can talk, we could be talking about a UTI, urinary tract infection, could be a pneumonia, could be a cellulitis, um, could be some type of intra infection. So there's a lot of different possibilities, but you definitely got to think about infection and look for one every every time you see a patient that comes in in DKA.
0: Okay, some other um, common causes may be cardiac infarction um, or some sort of an ischemia, and then some other medications like steroids and antipsychotics.
1: Yeah, definitely there are a host of medications that can increase your blood sugar and push you into either DKA or um, HHS, which we may get into later. Um, And you mentioned the common ones being the uh, steroids and also the antipsychotics.
0: Okay, so I think sometimes people get confused as to, or maybe they're too trigger happy to say, okay, this patient has DKA. So, what are some examples of where a patient may not have DKA? So, for example, um, like ketosis versus DKA.
1: Yeah, so you can definitely have diabetic keto ketosis without acidosis. Um, in that case, you're going to have a high sugar. You're going to have some ketones in the urine or in the in the blood, but you won't actually have um, severe enough acidosis to meet the criteria for DKA meaning that your pH will be above 7.3, your bicarb will be above 18, um, and you won't actually require uh, insulin drip or admission to the ICU. But you still require some insulin and some fluids, most likely to to help with those other metabolic derangements, the the hyperglycemia and the ketosis.
0: And are there ever people who just live under uh, live in a pH that's under 7.3?
1: That would most likely be in the context of renal failure, um, but a patient who has otherwise normal renal function and has diabetes, if their pH is under seven point three, I'd be I'd be very concerned and I would treat them aggressively.
0: Okay, and let's touch on patients having a normal blue normal blood glucose, but also have an anion gap.
1: Um, so I think what you're getting at here is uh, an entity known as euglycemic DKA. Euglycemic meaning normal sugar. Um it's it's definitely more rare than the hyperglycemic dk um but there are some instances in which your your patient with dk still has a normal sugar or a sugar under 250 um this is sometimes seen in the cases where patients are rationing their insulin they know they're running out and they're kind of saving it to stretch it out see if they can uh, get them until they can get a refill and they might Um, give themselves their one last dose of insulin right before they come to the ER and that could um, drop their sugar. And it could trick you into thinking they're not into DKA because they're not in DKA because their, their sugar is normal. Or in other instances, they may be so malnourished that they're um, they just don't have the energy that the sugar in their body and their liver and their muscles to um, to mount the hyperglycemia. But again, this is rare. Um, Most of the time, uh, in DKA, you're going to have that sugar over 250 and sometimes it can be 3, 4, 500, 600.
0: All right. So what is the worst that can happen to a patient if they end up being in DKA?
1: I mean, DKA, if untreated, is associated with, um, you know, a, a, a significant mortality rate. Um, these days, that's more rare. I think um, as a, you know, as a specialty, emergency medicine is, is quite good at diagnosing and treating DKA. Um, so mortality rates have gone down. Um, but there are other serious neurological complications, uh, particularly in the pediatric population. Uh, the most feared complication of decay is cerebral edema. Uh, luckily, this is still pretty rare these days. You're looking at maybe half of 1% up to 1% of pediatric decay cases will progress into cerebral edema.
0: Okay, so let's jump quickly into the workup. Um, so, what's a general workup that you would give? So, your patient walks into the ED. Um, you suspect DKA. What is? What are some labs that you're you're ordering?
1: Um, so, you're going to get a whole bunch of labs. Obviously, um, I guess the first one that you're going to get back is just going to be your finger stick, right? That's usually going to be your your first hint that a patient could be in DKA. Um, you know, patient might look sick. They might be tachycardic. They might be tachypnic. Uh, initially you might not know exactly what's going on. Um, but often a, a, finger stick, a bedside glucose is done and you'll see, oh, wow, it's high. Maybe it's critical high. Maybe it's, you know, 400s, 300, something like that. That's the first one that comes back. Um, at that point, you're going to want to draw a whole bunch of labs. So you're typically going to get your, you know, your basic labs like CBC, a basic metabolic panel you're going to want to also get a venous blood gas that's going to give you your ph and it's also in in most emergency departments that's going to come back much faster than the cbc or the basic metabolic panel which will go to the lab uh, in our emergency department at mount sinai the nurses can run the vbg uh, at the bedside and get it back within minutes which is immensely useful um, and in fact there are some papers out there that have demonstrated the the utility of vbg to rule out dka um, and how the VBG alone can, can rule it out with 98, 99% sensitivity. Um, looking for other things, um, you're probably going to get, uh, blood cultures, urine cultures. Obviously you're getting a urine. Um, should have mentioned that earlier. You're going to get at least a U dip, probably a UA. You're looking again for ketones and any other type of infection, like a UTI. Um, you're probably going to get send cultures, especially if the patient's febrile, um, because we talked earlier about the possibility of there being an infection, which triggered this. Um, if you're worried about any type of acute coronary syndrome, you're going to throw on a troponin most likely. This is not absolutely essential for every case, but for an older patient with any cardiac symptoms, uh, I think it's I think it's wise to add a troponin.
0: I just want to um, also say that the VBGs may also be a more accurate representation of what's going on in the tissues versus an ABG, Okay, also, if you're concerned about um, any kind of a cardiac uh, cardiac reason for an underlying cause, then an EKG would also be appropriate. Um, and then if your VBG doesn't have a lactate level, you may want to cons- um, you may want to send a separate lactate level, especially if you're concerned about infection and sepsis, um, if you think that's that's the underlying reason.
1: Another thing you might want to add, if for some reason you can't get urine from a patient, and this could happen, obviously, if they're very dehydrated or altered, uh, is a serum ketones, which might come back faster than the urine ketones if you're not able to get a urine sample from the patient.
0: This may also apply to renal failure patients who just don't produce urine anymore. Before we talk about the complete management of DKA, can we really quickly go over an anion gap? Um, I think that this always is a little bit of a point of contention. Um, but this is something that we'll have to monitor is the anion gap because that's when we know when to, when the drip, the insulin drip has to be stopped, um, or when it's going when you're going to start looking to stopping the drip.
1: Yeah, so when it comes to anion gap, I like to keep things really simple. So I just use the the simple conventional anion gap formula, which is going to be sodium minus the sum of your chloride and your bicarb. So another way to say that would be take your sodium, subtract the chloride, and then subtract the bicarb. Um, The normal range, you could argue, you know, the exact numbers. I just remember it's about 8 to 12 normally. Um, But again, anything above 10, and you've met criteria for DKA. Um, So that's basically the anion gap. Now, some people will use potassium in the formula for an anion gap some people will correct for albumin i think if you just punch in anion gap calculator into google you'll the first hit will be md calc Uh, and if you click onto that link you'll see that their anion gap calculator asks you for the albumin to uh, correct for hypoalbuminemia Um, and uh, also to remind your listeners when you're looking at the sodium, you're not looking at the corrected sodium. You're looking at the sodium that just came back on your on your chemistry panel. Um, so I just use the simple one again, sodium minus chloride minus bicarb, and then whatever number that is, that's what I use to diagnose and to monitor treatment.
0: I just want to touch on the albumin part um, a little bit. So I think for most patients, albumin is not going to be an issue. But if you have a really, really sick patient, um, you may have to adjust for the albumin. And the reason why is because it's a major source of unmeasured anions. And and it's it's probably like the one source that will be clinically significant for a treatment. So a drop in albumin by 10 grams per liter can cause the anion gap to fall about 2.5 milliequivalents per liter, um, even with the pH being the same. So your anion gap might be higher um, once it's corrected with um, once it's corrected, if your patient has hypoalbumen- I can't even say
1: hypoalbuminemia. Hypo-
0: Do you want to go over some symptoms of what the patient will look like when they come into our emergency departments?
1: Um, yeah, sure. Uh, it can present with a lot of kind of vague, non-specific symptoms, just like general malaise, fatigue, decreased energy, decreased appetite. Um, they would probably also be reporting uh, increased thirst, uh, polyuria, um, polydipsia, to use the technical terms. Um, you can also have nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain just from the ketosis itself. Um, and then in the more extreme forms, and the more severe versions of DKA, you can be altered or comatose.
0: Okay, so let's jump into the management of DKA patients. I've always learned it's three main things that you're really looking at in terms of treating DKA. So first is always fluids, and then insulin, and then and then you're looking at electrolytes as well.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a great way to look at it. Those are kind of the three important components of therapy. Um, the way I think of it is first fluids. That's the easy one. Uh, it's always safe to give a, a liter or two of normal saline up front in a DKA patient. Um, and then we can talk a little bit later about when to switch the fluids and what other fluids to use, but I'm still a proponent of normal saline. Uh, so is the ADA. There are some studies coming out, some discussion on, on blogs and so on about, uh, plasma light, but personally I'm still in the normal saline camp myself. It's a very, uh, old and well-known therapy that we know is effective and it's, uh, quite inexpensive, all things considered. Um, Insulin, on the other hand, is not always safe in DKA. There are certain instances in which you'd want to withhold insulin. Um, and that would be, as you've probably already guessed, uh, hypokalemia. If you're, if you're getting your VBG back uh, or your basic metabolic panel back and your potassium is, is low, is under 3.3, you know, or is in the twos, you're going to want to replete the potassium before you give insulin. I think all your listeners know that insulin is going to lower your serum potassium, and you don't want to lower it if it's already low. You could get into trouble with cardiac arrhythmias then. So that's, I think, a really important teaching point or clinical pearl is to verify the potassium before you initiate any insulin therapy.
0: I think that's a really good point. Um, the minimum potassium level before you can start an insulin drip will be 33
1: yeah, that's right. And um even if you're around, you know, 3.5, anywhere from 3 3.3 to to 5, you're going to be supplementing potassium anyways concurrently with your insulin therapy. Um typically DK patients are total body potassium depleted because they've been uh they've been urinating a lot. They've been losing a lot of electrolytes through the urine because of this osmotic diuresis. Um they're Um, They're going to need to be repleted with probably magnesium as well. So I advocate for giving potassium and magnesium and the magnesium is felt to help the kidneys retain the potassium. So they work well together in concert. Um, Just to remind your listeners, you can give potassium, obviously IV can also give it PO if the patient isn't currently vomiting. I think PO is a great safe route to give the potassium. And you're going to want to monitor it um, regularly while the patient is on the insulin drip.
0: Okay. And just a quick review, if you are giving potassium, um, there are limitations of how much potassium you can give. Uh, so if you're giving it PO, it's 40 milliequivalents PO uh, per hour. And then if you're giving it IV through a peripheral IV, it's 10 milliequivalents per hour as a max. And then if you have a central line, um, because your patient's that sick and they have a central line, we're looking at 20 equivalents per hour and that's through the central line. So if you have a really potassium depleted patient, um, it might take a little bit longer before you can even start the insulin drip.
1: Right, um, we should probably talk about uh, fluid management uh, in the kind of middle part of the, the therapy. So we mentioned already that the first two liters uh, NS is, is uh, the, the chosen the, the, the therapy of choice, the fluids of choice. Um, however, you could eventually get into hypernatremia. Your sodium could go up if you give too much NS uh, as, as could your chloride. So you're going to want to monitor those, monitor those things as you're resuscitating this patient. Um, if you get into issues with hypernatremia and, and hyper uh, or hyperchloremic acidosis, you can switch your fluids from NS to half NS, uh, which is going to be giving your patient more free water, less sodium, less chloride. Um, so we could talk on another um, point, which is the, the insulin drip versus bolus. Um, so I think in the past, it was very common for people to give a large insulin bolus and then follow it with a drip. Later studies have shown that in terms of Patient-oriented outcomes—they're about the same, so there's no need to give the bolus. Um, if you do, typically it's 10 units IV um, or uh, 0.1 units per kilo. Um, but alternatively, it's it's perfectly acceptable to just start an insulin drip without a bolus, uh, and the dose—you know—you can look it up, obviously. But um, it's usually going to be around 10. And if you want to do a weight-based, if you want to be really fancy you can do 0.1 units per kilo per hour or you can even go a little higher than that which would be 0.14 units per kilo per hour um, and that's roughly 10 units for a 70 kilo man um, although your patients might be heavier than 70 kilos so just be aware of that
0: right and so the, whether to do an insulin bolus or not it is controversial it's still controversial um, so technically. J- just so you know, um, I'm also on the no bolus camp, um, but it is against current ADA recommendations in adults. They don't recommend it for peds, for the pediatric population. And the concern is um, you're going to drop the sugar too quickly. And that's the that's the last thing you want to do. You don't want to drop the sugar quickly. So the rate actually is about 50 to 75 milligrams per deciliter per hour that's about how much of the glucose you want to drop Um, so you don't want to go too fast
1: so in terms of things that you want to follow while they're on the insulin drip you're going to be want to you're going to want to check their finger stick glucose every one hour that's a typical dk protocol and then you're also going to be checking uh, either a venous blood gas gas, or a, a bmp basic metabolic panel every one to two hours that's that's pretty standard Now, different institutions may have their own individual DKA protocols, so I would advise all your listeners to inform themselves of that, see if, A, it exists. If it doesn't exist, uh, you might think about working with a team of uh, emergency physicians, endocrinologists, emergency nurses to come up with a protocol because most of the studies show that adhering to some type of protocol results in better care and better outcomes for these DKA patients.
0: I'm just going to pipe in that I don't really like the hourly blood draws. Um, For me, it doesn't end up being clinically significant because by the time I'm drawing that second uh, blood gas, the results haven't even come in on the first one. So for me, it's every two hours. um, That's when I'm doing my VBGs and then if needed a BMP. But I am doing um, hourly finger sticks.
1: Yeah, and th- I think that speaks to the advantage of having that point of care VBG because you can get that back in minutes, and it allows you to titrate all your drips and your fluids uh, really quickly. So that is one advantage over the, the BMP that might have to go upstairs to the lab.
0: Okay, so now our patient has been on an insulin drip forever, um, and I'm calculating this anion gap. It's looking like it's starting to close. So how? When do I? When? When can I turn off this insulin drip?
1: Um, so you're going to be looking for three things primarily. You're looking uh, at the sugar coming down under 250. Uh, you're also looking for your gap to close. Um, that's something you'll hear in the emergency department or in the ICU is that, oh, they, their gap is closing. Um, I'm always reminded of the uh, subway in London. To, you got to mind the gap. Uh, so that applies to DKA as well. Uh, and you're going to want to get down under 12. Uh, and then the pH, you're going to want the pH to normalize. So you'll be checking that pH on the VBG periodically, as we discussed, and you're going to want to get it up over 7.3. Uh, and same with the bicarb. The bicarb is going to be slowly rising um, with therapy, and that's going to get up over 18. Once you have two out of those three criteria, um, it will likely be safe to transition the patient off of the insulin drip onto some subcutaneous insulin.
0: Okay, so sometimes, um what I've noticed is the the serum glucose will correct itself before the anion gap will close. So usually add some sugar to my water. So is there a specific type of IV fluids with dextrose that you're using, or using five percent? Um, so like D five W or D ten W, D five half NS. Um, Does it matter?
1: Uh, The standard, uh, which would be consistent with the ADA guidelines, would be D5, half NS. Uh, And you're going to want to switch to that anytime your sugar drops below 250 or so um, in that range. Because as you mentioned earlier, you don't want your patient to become hypoglycemic. Now, that's unlikely to happen in the early runnings if they come in with a sugar of 600. That's going to take a little while. But eventually, that sugar is going to come down. It's going to normalize. And anytime you get around 250, you're going to want to add glucose to your IV fluids, as you mentioned. And the standard is D5, half NS.
0: Okay, so now we've got some IV dextrose, um, IV fluids with dextrose running. The anion gap is uh, closed, let's say. And we've got another parameter to pH is above 7.3. So... Let, can we talk about how, talk about when we should give the long acting insulin and then when we can actually turn off the insulin drip?
1: Um. Yeah. So in most functional hospitals, the patient's going to be upstairs. The patient's going to be probably in the ICU or some monitored setting uh, when they close their gap, normalize their pH and their bicarb. Um, but if for some reason you've got a horrendous boarding problem in your ED and the patient is still down there six to eight hours later, uh, you might be the one, the emergency nurse and the emergency physician might be the one who are, uh, the ones who are transitioning the patient off of the insulin drip onto the sub Q, uh, insulin. So this is another kind of clinical pearl. Uh, that you want to keep in mind is that there's a delay when you give subcutaneous insulin, the time to peak plasma might be one to two hours, uh, which means that you actually want to overlap your insulin therapy, meaning that you're going to keep the patient on the drip, give the sub-Q insulin, wait about two hours and then stop the drip because only at that two hour mark uh, is your sub-Q insulin uh, peaking in your plasma. If you stop the drip and then give the sub-Q insulin, you're actually going to have a gap of one to two hours without much insulin on board, and it's just poor form if your patient slips back into DKA in that one to two hour window.
0: Okay, so just just as a quick reminder, when your patients are on an insulin drip, be careful about hypoglycemia. So you really want to keep the blood sugar, the blood glucose between 150 and 200, Um, And then the other thing you're monitoring is the potassium and you're concerned about the hypokalemia. So for the blood glucose, the easy way to do it is your hourly finger sticks. Um, And then in terms of your potassium, if you have a point of care, VBG, great. If not, then monitor off the labs that you're sending every two hours. Okay, I want to just talk about one other thing um, that's controversial and that's the bicarb drip. What are your thoughts?
1: Um, yeah, so the evidence is, uh, is kind of mixed on this, whether there's any benefit, whether there's harm. Um, I think we should just keep it simple. If you look at the ADA guidelines, what they recommend is to only give bicarb if the pH is under 7. So that's going to be only in your severe cases of DKA. Um, anytime your pH is over 7, you should just withhold bicarb. Bicarb, uh, I should mention, is one of the factors that was independently associated with cerebral edema in pediatric case of DKA. So um, it should really be used judiciously, especially in the pediatric population. Um, And again, only give under pH of seven.
0: Okay, I'm I'm going to disagree a little bit.
1: Are you disagreeing with the ADA?
0: Yes. so I don't I don't see any benefit with the bicarb drip um, for if you're treating just solely DKA. If you think that there is some other sort of um, other underlying cause that you know may contribute to a low pH, then I would say, okay, um, consider a bicarb drip. But if you're just trying to fix someone's pH that's in DKA with um, a low pH, I'm not sure if the studies really, the research is really clear that a bicarb drip would fix that. Um, but that's just my own thoughts. It's still very controversial. So I just want to add a little nugget. Um, Obviously, I'm not a doctor, I'm not prescribing, Uh, I'm not ordering these drips. So if someone is going to order a bicarbonate drip and the pH is below seven, I am going to hang it. Uh, Most likely, this is a last-ditch effort, so do I understand why a bicarb drip is being ordered? Yes. Um, Do I think that a bicarb drip is going to do anything for someone who is solely in DKA? Not really. Do I think that a bicarb drip is going to help in a patient that has decay, that has an underlying cause that may require a bicarb drip? Yes. Okay, a few other questions. So let's say your patient is in that really small population and ends up getting cerebral edema. What's the treatment?
1: Um, well, maybe we should talk a little bit about what to look for clinically. Um, so... Early symptoms of cerebral edema would be headache. Uh, You could have an alteration in your mental status, uh, eventually lethargy, potentially seizures. Um, You can try to diagnose it uh, with a CAT scan or an MRI if your patient's safe enough, I mean, stable enough to get imaging. That might not always be the case. Um, You're going to be treating it with mannitol, uh, potentially uh, intubation, if their mental status has deteriorated such that their airway is a concern. Um, and it's it's I mean it's a really catastrophic complication. Thankfully, it's it's quite rare.
0: So there's another controversy, um, and it has to do with fluid resuscitation. So, should we be aggressively um, aggressively giving the fluids, or should we just kind of give it at like a normal rate?
1: Uh, yeah, so that's a controversy in pediatric decay. Um, if you speak to adult emergency physicians, pretty much everyone is on board with the concept of uh, aggressive fluid resuscitation being safe for adults with decay. However, in the pediatric population, um, there is definitely a controversy. I like to refer to it as nerd wars. Um, some people believe that uh, you know, the children should get aggressive fluid resuscitation with the rapid infusion of normal saline. Uh, A lot of pediatric endocrinologists and pediatric emergency physicians uh, believe that a a more restrictive, slow fluid uh, resuscitation is safer, uh, especially with regards to cerebral edema. Um, This topic actually was studied by a group of uh, emergency physician researchers led by Nate Cooperman in the PCAR Network. Uh, Some of their research was presented in May of 2017, which is this year. And the the results are not yet published, um, but they should be published in the next three to six months. Um, Just to give you a sneak peek, essentially, it was a randomized controlled trial of fast versus slow fluid resuscitation for pediatric DKA. And um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say the results. I'll just keep them to myself, but I'm uh, I'm eager to see it in print.
0: All right. Sounds exciting. So once this comes out, we'll have to update um, this post and... And then you'll be able to read the study on your own. So just a few expected outcomes. If your patient is boarding in your ER long enough, the mental, mental status should improve um, and respirations should improve, especially if they came in with Cosmo respirations. And um, and a lot of these abnormal lab values, they should start to improve. Now, the next, once that all starts to improve, uh, the first thing that your patient will probably ask is, when can I eat?
1: Um, yeah, I would try to refrain from treating your patients while they're on the insulin drip. Uh, it sounds a little cruel, um, but it, uh, I mean, usually they're not that hungry when they're really sick with their ketones are high and their pH is really low. So it's not been an issue in my experience. Um, but once they're off the insulin drip and they're on the, uh, the sub Q insulin, I, you know, I think it's only humane to allow them to eat something.
0: So my patients always ask me when to eat. Um, so I, I, I do wait until they're off the insulin drip completely. And then we've got some sort of a sliding scale. Um, they're gonna have to get some insulin, uh, short acting uh, Lispro um, for each meal and then at night and then probably a long acting um, if they're still in your ER. Um, and then yeah, they can definitely eat. Anything else you wanna talk about regarding, regarding DKA?
1: Uh no, I, I think that we covered all the important points, uh, Yancy. Thank you again for having me. Um, do you want to do a quick recap of the most important teaching points for today's episode?
0: Sure, sounds good.
1: Um, so obviously DKA is the uh the triad of hyperglycemia, ketosis, and acidosis. Your uh most important pillars of therapy are gonna be your fluid resuscitation, your insulin, and then your supportive care for the electrolyte derangements. Common complications to avoid are going to be your hypokalemia and your hypoglycemia. So you're going to be want to, you're going to want to monitor those closely—the sugar and the potassium. You're going to want to um, replete other electrolytes like the magnesium, uh, and then follow them closely as they're on the insulin drip. Um, I find it's a very interesting disease. Uh, I find it very gratifying to treat because you can see the effects of your treatment right in front of your eyes and your patients can go from very sick to well within a matter of hours.
0: All right, well, thanks so much for coming on to the show, Mark.
1: It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: That's it for today's episode. And as always, you can find all the information at recessnurse.com in the show notes. And yes, I can say hypoalbuminemia. Just please don't ask me to say it twice in a row. (laughs) Peace. You've just listened to an episode of the Recess Nurse Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Yunsi Dursa. Check out the website, recessnurse.com, for show notes, a place to leave your comments, and start a conversation. You can also follow me on iTunes, Twitter, and Facebook.